Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 123. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 12 through 15 and follow with some thoughts about virtue, role models, and the inevitable disappointment. Before I get into the recap of Ezekiel 12 through 15, I just wanted to put it out there that this episode number 123 is the midpoint of this multi-year exploration of the Tanakh. We're halfway there. Tanakhcast has been going on since April of 2013, and barring the apocalypse, we'll wrap up chapters 32 through 36 in Second Chronicles on October 24th, 2022. FYI, there's a similar Tanakhic journey going on online at a website entitled 929. I'll put a link to the site at thenextjew.com. The folks at 929 began their project on December 21st, 2014. Each day, between Sunday and Thursday, the website is dedicated to a chapter in the Tanakh. There are all kinds of posts, interesting information, short explanations, lush images, audio, video, links to social networks, study groups, meetups, events, IRL, and the contributors to each day's learning come from diverse backgrounds and professions. Each weekday at midnight, the page changes over to the next chapter. And on the weekend, Friday and Shabbat, There's a weekly summary and an opportunity for catching up and going deeper. As you're listening to this episode about Yechezkel and his prophetic shenanigans, the 929 folks are probably somewhere in Ecclesiastes. The 929 name refers to the 929 chapters in the Tanakh. Like I said, they began in December 2014 and will complete the first cycle during the 70th birthday celebrations for the State of Israel in late April of 2018. The only catch is... And for now, 929 is in rich yet plain Hebrew. Perhaps when they start the second cycle, they might include an English version. I'm told that they're working on that. In the meantime, there's always Tanakhcast. So, Ezekiel chapter 12 starts with a bang, or more like a crash, as God commands Yechezkel to go into self-imposed exile and to do it by breaking a hole in the wall of his house and carrying his gear out through the hole. Quote, Take it out in the dark and cover your face that you may not see the land, for I make you a portent to the house of Israel. And as instructed, he smashes a hole into the wall of his house as folks gather to watch. He pulls his gear through the hole and heads out into the night. And of course, like a good biblical performance artist, there's an explanation for the symbolic act. Quote, I am important for you. As I have done, so it shall be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And this fate will not just befall the hoi polloi, but also the princes and nobility. They too will carry their gear on their backs as they head out into the dark to exile in Babylonia. The second bit of performance art involves food again. This time, Yechezkel is supposed to, quote, eat your bread in trembling and drink your water in fear and anxiety. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Because what's about to go down for the Jews in the land of Israel will be fearsome and anxiety-provoking, I guess. Yechezkel's prophecies now move on to more figurative matters, common figures of speech and maxims, and for the next two chapters he will consider words and their power. First, he deconstructs a common refrain about prophecies, and that the people believe that they're... Bullshit. That's how I feel. Total fucking bullshit. Which is to say that the opposite is true. What is foretold will be fulfilled. I accept that challenge. 
Then chapter 13 begins with a frontal assault against the false prophets, those who would use words to mislead. They have been, quote, like jackals among the ruins. Now, for those of you that have never seen jackals in action, I guess the present-day equivalent would be raccoons. Here in Toronto, there has been an unofficial war on raccoons because since the introduction of street-side pickup of the green bin where we throw all of our food scraps and organic waste, these little bandits have been feasting. Now, they don't futz with the clasp on the can. They just knock the green bin over and in some cases jump up and down on them until the lid pops. And even with the introduction of a new green bin design, the allegedly killer app with a twist lock, it seems not to deter the raccoons all that much. Anywho, what Yechezkel is alluding to is the destructiveness of scavengers, especially since, quote, you did not enter the breaches and repair the walls for the house of Israel. You might as well have left the green bin just sitting there wide open. Yechezkel employs another image, one more familiar to folks in our day, the subject of many a home improvement show, the shoddy Renault. The false prophet will assure the people that all is well when, quote, nothing is well, daubing with plaster the flimsy wall which the people were building. Say to those daubers of plaster, it shall collapse. A driving rain shall descend, and you, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a hurricane wind shall rend it. Then, when the wall collapses, you will be asked, what became of the plaster you daubed on? Yechezkel's next target are the sorceresses, who use magical veils and armbands to capture people's souls and do dark magic. <laughs> In chapter 14, the elders come to Yechezkel and God tells Yechezkel that the very same elders that he's meeting with have been naughty and running after idols, and of course, God will punish them. But after all, if they repent, all will be well. Even Noah, Job, Eov, and Daniel would not be able to stay God's hand. Their righteousness would only save themselves from the wild beasts roaming the land and eating people. Even the sons and daughters of those righteous three wouldn't be saved from the animal onslaught if they were wicked, or saved from the pestilence, or from the sword, or from the famine. But the righteous, of course, will emerge unscathed. Chapter 15 brings us back to the realm of words and another figurative image, the wood of the grapevine. God begins with a series of rhetorical questions. Quote, Can wood be taken from it for use in any work? Can one take a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Now suppose it was thrown into the fire as fuel and the fire consumed its two ends and its middle was charred. Is it good for any use? Even when it was whole, it could not be used for anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred? Can it still be used for anything? The answer, by the way, is, is no. But don't worry, folks. Here comes the explanation. The people of Jerusalem are like the wood of the grapevine, fuel for the fire. They may have escaped the conflagration at the beginning, but in the end, they will burn. On that cheery note, here endeth the lesson. Did I uh, mention that Tanakh cast is at the halfway point? You know, at any time when a person undertakes a massive project, whether it's going through high school or graduate school or committing to drinking more water because the doctor said so, or writing a book or making a marriage work or looking for your lobster or looking for a new job or putting up with the crap one you currently have or reading one's way through the Tanakh four chapters at a time and podcasting about it, there will be ups and downs and downs 
and an up, and probably some more downs. Moments when you feel energized and supported, and moments when you feel completely alone in your toil. So whichever project you happen to be working on right at this moment, and how close you seem to be finishing, or where you happen to be on the spectrum between feeling good about it and feeling utterly demoralized, the most important thing to acknowledge is that it's a roller coaster ride, and you should savor the W's when you can get them. The team came together, and that's a fucking W I have never been less embarrassed in all my life. So back to this week's portion and a mention in chapter 14 about how truly awful it's going to get for sinners. This messaging is but one part of a broader theology referred to in the biz as Torah Tagmul, the Torah or teaching about reward, or more colloquially, the concept of reward and punishment. We've been contending with this concept pretty consistently since the first chapters in the Torah. The idea is simple. God will reward those who observe his commandments and punish those who intentionally transgress them. Practically every story in the Tanakh has this at its moral center. But how this plays out in real time is clearly a matter of faith and perspective, because you can't scientifically demonstrate the causation or even the correlation between the righteous being rewarded and the sinful being punished. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. I just like, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. Although most Orthodox and Conservative Jews and many Reformed Jews generally accept this principle today, notable rationalists like Maimonides believe that God didn't actually mean out rewards and punishment in our present reality in this fashion. Judaism's fourth and arguably scrappiest denomination, the Reconstructionists, also reject this aspect of the theology. Anywho, Yechezkel's handling of this aspect of the theology is not in the realm of prophecy, which is his go-to. It has more of a universalist bent. He speaks to the world in chapter 14, talking of whole lands that sin against God. This strikes a tone that will become increasingly familiar as we move into the wisdom books later in the Ketuvim. And as part of this wisdom booky tone, he mentions three individuals from legend and history that were held up as paragons of virtue. Noah, Noach, Daniel, and Eov, Job. We can assume that the Noah he's referring to is that Noah, the one that Genesis tells us was, quote, a righteous man. He was blameless in his age. Noah walked with God. And because of his righteousness and blamelessness, not only was he saved from the deluge, but so were his wife and sons. Glub, glub, glub. Oh, Noah, Noah, save us, save us. No! We can safely assume that the Noah Yechezkel is referring to is the hero of the Canaanite version of the guy saved from flood story. Because as we have discovered, Noah is a theophoric name. That is, it's a name with God embedded or attached to it, like El or Yahu in names like Shmuel or Tzidkiyahu in the Jewish tradition. We have Western Semitic inscriptions that have names like Nach Ilum, Noach is God, or Mut Nacha, Man Noach, which kind of sounds like the archaic name Mit Ushelach, Methuselah, a word that has come to mean old man because Methuselah was the oldest man to ever have lived, according to Genesis chapter 5. Anyway, the hero of the Babylonian version of the guy saved from flood story is Utnapishtim, which means found life. 
And there's also a Sumerian version, which who has as its hero, Ziusudra, which means long living at the center of that story. Both the Babylonian and Sumerian stories predate the story in Genesis by about a thousand years. Both award the hero with divine qualities for surviving the flood, and both also do not necessarily position the hero as the only righteous man among the wicked. So that's Noah. But the next two figures to emerge from legend and history, or more like legendary history or historical legend, are more problematic. Daniel. It's not the Daniel of the Tanakh, because that would set off all kinds of anachronistic red alerts. Because Daniel, the eponymous author slash subject of the book of Daniel, did not precede Yechezkel. If anything, Daniel was a young boy when Yechezkel was running around Babylonia dropping bars. And Daniel would not have reached a level of notoriety as a youngster that would have merited mention as a paragon of virtue. And why would Yechezkel include such a nice Jewish boy in this list of non-Jews? Noach, if you recall, though righteous, was not a Red Sea pedestrian. He was not a Hebrew. And neither was Iov. Also, the way Daniel's name appears in Ezekiel 14 is a variant spelling. The Daniel of the Tanakh is spelled Dalet Nun Yud Aleph Lamed. The Daniel here is spelled without the Yud. Yechezkel alludes to Daniel one other time in this book in chapter 28 when he is prophesizing to the king of Tzor. And there, he makes an allusion to both Daniel's righteousness and wisdom, from which the context the people of Tzor would have been familiar with. All of which is to say that the Daniel referred to in chapter 14 might be the Daniel who was the hero of an Ugaritic story that may have been well known in the land of Israel and its surrounding kingdoms, but didn't survive in its entirety. Where a king named Daniel, who did not have sons, prayed to his gods, and near offered, and was righteous, and through Baal's intervention, his prayers were answered and he had a son. Which leaves us with the third legendary paragon, Yov or Job. Yov is the most controversial of the three, and, and it's not like that controversial, but you know, here's what I mean. It, it raises a big issue around provenance. Did Yechezkel know the story as we know it from the Tanakh? Or was he familiar with an earlier pre-Tanakh version that inspired the version we have? We have no full accounts of the pre-Tanakh version, but echoes of the Western Semitic legend in the Tanakhic version of a man named Eov, a rich man, well-respected by his ancient contemporaries who were semi-nomadic tribesmen in the eastern Jordan Valley. So as the story goes, and we'll discuss it in greater detail in episode 191 sometime in late August of 2020, God decides to subject Eov to a series of trials where Eov loses his wealth and his children in short order, and eventually, after being stricken with boils, he reaches a place so dark and desperate, and yet he still doesn't blame God or curse God. Now, the motif of the good man who suffers is not exclusive to the Tanakh. However, there is a much older Sumerian story entitled A Man Opposite or Against or Facing His God that comes from the second millennium BCE. In that tale, an unnamed rich man falls ill. He kind of plummets from his high position, he's abandoned by his family and his friends, he rails against his fate, but like Eov, he doesn't blame God. Instead, he confesses his secret sins and asks his God for mercy, which he gets, and all is restored. The center of this tale, though, is the man's lament, which would account for the, the alternate name of the text, which is, quote, a psalm of supplication of a man to his God. All of this is to say that Yechezkel selected three well-known, popular, Semitic, legendary paragons and held them up 
as examples of how even they, these righteous three, would not be able to save anyone except for themselves from God's wrath. Except that rhetorically holding up a legendary paragon and saying to folks, be like this person, is kind of opening you up to major disappointment. Especially if, these days, that legendary paragon is male. My childhood pantheon was populated by many athletes, including O.J. Simpson. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Bryant. And even then, I began to suspect that many more of the people I had admired as a child were, to paraphrase Daniel Chapter 2, like great statues with heads of gold, arms and chests of silver, bellies and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of mingled iron and clay. Which is to say that all it would take was for someone to throw a stone at the feet for the statue to topple. We are in a strange time now. Then again, I'm sure Yechezkel felt the same way about his time, but our time is strange because of the rapidity of change. Waves of fundamentally life-upheaving change sweep through our lives every five years or so, but our brains aren't capable of keeping up. My grandparents didn't live like that. Their lives were probably plus-minus 10% the same as the lives of their parents and grandparents, the way they looked at the world, the way they thought about human relationships, basic human decency, etiquette, what's funny. All of that was pretty much the same. But the way I think about these things have shifted, and the way that my kids will think about these things will shift again and again and again. But then, at the same time, not. Our brains haven't evolved as fast as our smartphones. So let me give you an example, especially as it relates to legendary paragons. I was fortunate enough to live in a time where all of my teenage and young adult indiscretions did not make it to video. All of my past stupidities were not proverbially written on my forehead with a sharpie for all to see. So unless I choose to disclose some stupid thing I did as a 19-year-old or 29-year-old or 39-year-old, well, maybe not 39-year-old, it's relegated to the past and buried. And that stupid thing could have been the ultimate act of stupidity. It could have made me the subject of endless mockery. But there's no video, so deny, deny, deny. However, today, people, my kids included, are not so lucky. Even the most legendary paragon cannot escape the unblinking eye of someone's smartphone. So here's a rather innocent example, okay? Rob California, he's a user, he's a YouTube guy. Admittedly, you know, he's not a paragon of virtue. He's just some guy, a drummer in a German band called Bipol. And as a way of kind of grabbing eyeballs on this very trafficked platform, he decided to do a cannonball into a frozen over pool in what seems to be his backyard. So in a mixture of German and some salty English, he's ready to rock. Motherfucker, fuck the fucking world, and my new band is called Siskill. I'm sorry. Okay, if you want to see the whole clip for yourself and, and share in the man's shame, I'll put the link up at thenextjew.com. But the thing is, is for as long as there's an internet, this clip will always be there. You can see this man literally almost bust his ass on the ice on repeat for as long as you want. 
And while you're doing that, regimes can rise and fall and norms can shift. And there could be three new iPhones released with AR and VR that eventually evolve into an implant into your visual cortex. But no matter how many times I watch that clip, it still makes me laugh. It will never not be funny. My homo sapien sapien brain will register that hijinks as hilarious. And it will color how I think of that guy forever. And not in a bad way, mind you. Much like Howard Dean's exultant scream after placing a surprising third in the 2004 Iowa caucuses. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Yeah! I mean, I didn't really think that was that big of a deal, but, you know, this is the early days of CNN, and they just ran that clip over and over and over again. He could have been a contender. He could have been going places. Instead, every time someone hears the name or Googles Howard Dean, the top hit's going to be... That's a pretty obscure one, I guess. There have been so many others since then. How about Toronto Mayor Rob Ford in 2013 when he got in front of some cameras and, well, just, just have a listen. Do you smoke crack cocaine? Exactly. Yes, I have smoked crack cocaine. Or that jam I played earlier that surfaced during the 2016 American presidential campaign. Grab him by the pussy? Yes, well. <clears throat> All of this is to say that when you seek to put someone up on a pedestal to present them as an exemplar or a paragon of virtue, you better vet them pretty thoroughly because the higher that pedestal is, the farther that person can and will fall when some disclosure comes to light. So perhaps Yechezkel might be a better idea to leave well enough alone and highlight the virtue without attaching it to a paragon. We all love loyalty and faithfulness. We all can agree those are good values. But the second you attribute them to a person and say, be loyal and faithful like this person, you're just setting us up to be disappointed. I know rhetorically embodying a value that is putting a face to the name makes it stick better in our minds. But today, considering the time in which we live, which is different, not different from Yechezkel's time, perhaps we could use a little less face and a little more name. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 124 when we continue the book of Ezekiel with chapters 16 through 19.